So do you remember what your first like hockey memory was? I, I remember very specifically like the moment. I, you know, I was I was young. I can't remember how old, but I was definitely under 10. At that time, I was like doing community center dance classes, which I loved. I remember walking down to my basement one day and that's where our computer was in our house. My dad was sitting at a computer and he, I guess he had called me down and was like, you know, George, come down here. And I like walked up to him and he was like, how do you feel about starting hockey? And I was like, no, I kind of want to do dance. And he was like, well, I just signed you up. And that was it. He had already signed me up. I was already playing. And then I played hockey for a decade. I'm Archie Mann and this is Commons. And I'm talking to Commons producer Jordan Cornish. And according to Jordan, she saw hockey do a lot of strange things to people. People lose lose the plot a bit when it comes to hockey. It can be very personal, but it's also a business. And that's like a really fraught intersection, you know? So people do things that I don't think they would ever do or ever consider themselves doing for hockey. Parents especially got caught up in it all. I remember another kid who went in to play goalie. And this is, again, like we're like little kids, like under 10. And her dad is standing behind the the glass, behind the net, telling her, like, with his hands to lie down, to lie down on her back across the crease. No one can raise the puck, right? Like, because no one's ever played before. So that's why she's doing it. She didn't think of that herself. Her father told her to do that. There was, like, fanaticism around children. There was grudges. There was, like, disdain for kids. And it was all fine. Like, it was all fine because it was hockey. It's okay to hate that child and scream at them because, you know, that opposing team's child who, you know, shouldn't be playing in this league because they're too good or they're screwing up everything. You know, that was totally okay and appropriate. And actually, like, people like, yeah, I'm glad you said something. Like, it was a strange, strange world. The further away I got from it, the more absurd things started to feel, you know, like the lengths that we were willing to go for hockey don't make a ton of sense to me anymore. And I kind of wonder why we put ourselves through it. We were on the road constantly. And then like, you know, the money was obviously always a problem. Like this was a really expensive sport that put a lot of strain on us financially. And I think about like, you know, I'm 5'2". Like what were the returns on investment actually going to be for us, for me to be in it and for my brother to be in it, who also, you know, was a talented player, but was never going to make it to the NHL. And, And like at the time, it felt so normal and it felt so normal to deal with really intense aggression from some of the parents as well to like have a backup plan if you like needed to get driven home by someone else maybe while your parent cooled down like this was all that's how it is in jordan's family there was something else that made hockey even more important even more central to what they were all about Hockey was always a really big part of my life growing up. Part of this was like also there was like real family lore when it came to hockey. My dad played. He talks about his playing years to this day, played for the Young Nats. But the other piece of it is that like people really who are familiar with the Wayne Gretzky story know that when he came to Toronto to play in Junior B, that was like, you know, the beginning of kind of his career as like the star athlete that he became, right? Right, and this is a 14-year-old Wayne Gretzky coming to Toronto and really making waves for the first time. And playing with adult men, basically. And he's, you know, this kind of kid who everybody knows is playing on a level that hasn't been seen. 
But the other side of that is the family that he came and lived with was my family. He lived with my late grandparents and my dad in Rexdale. That's something I grew up with always, you know? It was like, we know Wayne Gretzky. My dad has his number. So you've met Wayne Gretzky. You, you've met the great one. I, I have met Wayne Gretzky more than once. <laughs> like, I actually have photos of Wayne Gretzky holding me as a baby in my backyard. We kind of grew up surrounded by Gretzky lore and, like, Gretzky stuff. Like, my dad has a lot of his old things. My dad wore Gretzky's hockey skates. It was like a pair of skates that Gretzky wore in games. He gave them to my dad, and my dad just started using them as his own skates. Like, it was just something I knew always. Like, it was just inevitable. Like, of course we were going to be playing hockey, because we're a hockey family. That's who we are, right? It never even occurred to me that there was another option until later in life. I I thought about playing again. I I haven't put my equipment on since. I literally took my equipment off my last game, 2012, on my last team. Part of it is just growing up and my adult brain sort of developing, you know, and I went to school and learned more about the world. And you begin to see, like, the issues with society reflected in this place where they're not only, you know, prevalent, kind of celebrated, right? Like, it's, it's an, it can be quite an ugly world. And the further I got away from it, the more I was upset about it, you know? Like, what it can do to people. It makes a kind of sense that this country has been under hockey's spell for the last century. And yeah, of course, it's a stereotype to equate hockey with Canadianness. Despite what you've been told by politicians and beer commercials, hockey is not the thing that brings us together as a country. But if you grew up here, it is impossible to avoid. Most Canadians I know have some kind of relationship with this sport, positive or negative. And more than that, it truly is one of our central cultural institutions. And just in Canada, it's a billion-dollar industry. But right now, the sport is going through a bit of a reckoning. Well, former NHL player Akeem Alou penned a powerful essay calling for change across all levels of hockey when it comes to diversity in the league. The woman who filed a lawsuit against Hockey Canada after an alleged sexual assault has broken her silence. Nova Scotia teen has played his last game of competitive hockey after suffering his fourth concussion. Two former professional hockey players are alleging past abuse within the Ontario Hockey League. So on this season of Commons, we're going to tackle this pillar of Canadian life head on. And I have to admit that when we first began our reporting on this subject, we were a little skeptical about how much was actually there. But the more we dug into it, and the more people we talked to, we've come to realize that in Canada, hockey is less of a sport and more of a civic religion. A religion beset by accusations of racism and systemic abuse with a billion-dollar business attached to it. It's the Catholic Church on ice. So over the next seven episodes, 
we'll be digging into the cult of hockey, scrutinizing its doctrines and exposing its secrets. More after the break. These days, I'm not much of a hockey guy. For one, I can't skate. I did play ball hockey for a few years as a kid, but I was pretty terrible. In my first year, I only scored a single goal, and it came in the very last game of the season. But like almost all my friends growing up, I was a little obsessed with the NHL. I'd scrimp together as many quarters as I could to buy hockey cards. I watched every Vancouver Canucks game that I could, and I absolutely worshipped all the players. Pavel Bure, Alexander McGilney, Trevor Linden, these were basically gods to me. But before I started working on this season, I hadn't even watched a hockey game in over a decade. In fact, I can tell you the exact date that that game took place on. June 15th, 2011. Game 7 of the Stanley Cup playoffs between the Boston Bruins and the Vancouver Canucks. The Canucks lost, and Vancouver did not take it well. This gathering has now been declared an unlawful assembly. Four stabbings in its result were reported. The scene so chaotic and violent. Fires erupted in busy downtown intersections. You are now ordered to disperse and leave the area in 10 minutes. Police in full force struggle to contain the crowd with tear gas. Or you will be subject to immediate arrest. Now, I can't express to you all how much I hated that fucking riot. It still bothers me that this was the thing that people were willing to riot over. And after that, something just kind of curdled inside me. And I think it's because the violence that you saw in the streets was reflective in some ways of the violence that's there in the ice all the time. People clearly wanted to enact it out. And so I just stopped watching it. So that's me. But for Ian Kennedy, his relationship with hockey changed slowly. I've always loved hockey. I played it since the day I could step on skates. Uh, I played AAA hockey all the way through my my minor hockey days. And then I played several years of junior hockey as well. But I've always had a passion for writing. And as someone who loves the game, it's quite easy to be left in the dark or, or to ignore the issues of the game. And at some point, I became aware And I could no longer just cover the games as they were, just talk about scores all day and forget about the other, the human impact that uh, the games that we love can have. And that's kind of how I jumped from being a sports reporter to someone that talks about social issues, equity and the barriers within the sport. I just started seeing things that didn't feel right and didn't sit well. And I could see that they were hurting kids and teenagers and Nobody was really talking about them. And there's maybe no better example of the good and the bad that hockey can do than a league in Toronto. It's a league that most Canadians haven't heard about, but it is absolutely crucial to the global hockey ecosystem. It's called the Greater Toronto Hockey League, or GTHL for short. The GTHL is the biggest minor hockey organization in the world. It is where people try to come to from other countries to play in. My name is Ian Kennedy. I'm a writer for the Hockey News. 
Now, the GTHL is massive. There are around 2,800 teams and more than 40,000 players that are under its umbrella. And for most of them, the stakes are fairly low. They're just kids who play hockey as an extracurricular activity. But for a substantial subset of families, the stakes are much higher. The scouting that goes on from the time kids are 12, 13, 14 years old to to find the next NHL talent is immense. And the competition within those organizations to get that talent onto their club is also intense. It really is seen as the most likely pathway to get to the NHL. The GTHL has gone from just being this massive hockey league to a professional hockey league pretty much played by children. The NHL itself has said that that's where NHL dreams are born, is in the GTHL. And when you get that kind of marketing right from the top, of course, parents and kids are going to believe it. And the reason why I wanted to talk about the GTHL is because you can see so many of the issues that plague hockey embodied in this children's league and how they're all intertwined. Let's start with the racism. Just last year, the GTHL published a report from an independent committee that found widespread discrimination within the league. And when you look at the numbers, it's not really all that surprising. Only around 10% of kids identified as non-white, and I probably don't have to tell you that that isn't exactly reflective of Toronto's demographics. And the GTHL promised to take action. But just over the past few months, a new scandal has emerged. Former NHLer Akeem Alou had been trying to work with the GTHL to create a hockey organization inside the league that would guarantee roster spots for Black, Indigenous, and non-white kids. But he claims that he was stonewalled. And why would he be stonewalled? Well, Alou says that it all comes down to money. Here he is speaking with TSN's Rick Westhead, who broke the story. These organizations are supposed to be run as not-for-profits. The issue of money, power, and corruption is the biggest problem we have in minor hockey right now. Alou claims that he was told he could buy a team for a million dollars. But here's the thing. That's not exactly legal. So what's going on here? The GTHL is a not-for-profit league, and all of the associations and teams that it oversees are also not-for-profit. But even at this youth level, hockey is big business. Here's Ian Kennedy again. Revenue within the GTHL last year was $8.8 million. And they also have millions of dollars in reserve funds, cash, sitting there. And that, of course, is to be used to operate the league. But where the real exploitation is coming down to is coaches being paid under the table. It's coming from equipment manufacturers who market to these families The skills coaches and the the personal trainers are being paid massive amounts of money, all the way to municipalities that are profiting from $500 an hour ice times. It is a across-the-board profiteering economy within hockey that it's all tied together, and uh, it is the youth that, yes, definitely have to pay to be there, sometimes in excess of $30,000 or $40,000 a season, but what's the benefit to leagues and communities and just adults that are see these youth as opportunity to make money. That's a really troubling thought when we're talking about children's sport. 
Let's take the coaches. Why would anyone want to secretly pay a youth coach's salary? What we know is that most of those organizations in the GTHL have a coach's fee that's on the books. They'll all pay their coaches, whether it's five or $10,000. So oftentimes now we're getting these coaches that off the books, out of the organization's ledgers, will say to parents, oftentimes up front and oftentimes later, that if you want me to be your coach, you need to pay X number of dollars. And the parents will pay that directly to the coach outside of the organization's control. And sometimes that might be a few hundred dollars, and sometimes that might be a few thousand dollars. And by paying that money, parents can gain power over their children's teams. We also know that in certain organizations, from time to time, uh, at least there's been allegations of, that parents will pay to have a less talented player on a team. Or they'll kind of buy, air quotes, an age group to allow them to control who's selected for that team. And this might come as a sponsorship on paper, but it's really not that. It's really a purchase of control to get their child onto a team. They're going to do anything possible to get that opportunity to put their their child in front of as many scouts and recruiters as possible. All right, so we've got secret off-the-books payments to coaches so that certain kids can get more playing time. But paying coaches is just the start. The control of organizations goes even further, where we have these external forces either purchasing an age group. So, for example, they might buy the... And when I say buy, I mean they might give money to control because on paper, no purchases can happen. But they might buy control, board positions, chairman positions, to control like the 2009 age group or something along those lines. Or they might buy those board positions to be the overarching force of all of the age groups within an organization. And that's where we get into these conversations of people like Akinalu who are trying to come into the GTHL and is being told that he can purchase an age group for a million dollars or an organization for three and a half million dollars. It's not necessarily that he would own that organization on paper, but he would be purchasing control. And that's something that the GTHL has admitted. It's something that they acknowledge is there, that control is changed hands and sometimes although they want to investigate it and they they claim that they would like to stop it sometimes that change in control comes through a financial transaction we're talking about millions of dollars to control the destiny of youth in this so if a coach is willing to take x number of dollars to give up control of a team and then to allow a parent to tell them who's going to be on the ice and when then the ethics and the morals and everything that we once thought was good about this sport has gone out the window. There's no other way about looking at that where there's no set rules, there's no meritocracy, there's no opportunity for youth to even have fun if their destiny is already being controlled by the financial gains or the wealth of certain participants in the league. There really would be no other way to describe that than corrupt. Ian spoke to people involved in the GTHL anonymously about these issues. 
what our sources told us was that they they did use the word corruption and they did talk a lot about how what we're talking about right now, how it's been going on for decades. All of the former coaches, the former administrators that we spoke to had been involved in the GTHL directly, including in, in the AAA level for more than 20 years. And they knew that coaches were paid. Sometimes they had been paid. But one of the more important parts that these people spoke about, our sources spoke about, was their fear. They were afraid that if they were named, that they would lose all of their opportunities within the league. And that fear of being named as an outsider and as being named as someone that is challenging the power imbalances and the structures of not just a league, but of the system of hockey in Canada in general, was real to these individuals in a game that they loved for the vast majority of their lives. And if they spoke openly using their own names, they would be threatened to no longer be a part of something that they had really built a passion for. All in all, Ian says that what we've built in the GTHL is a system of unpaid child labor. And the people that benefit from that are adults. It's a really circular pattern that goes on with the adults at the top profiting and the children being the ones that, if they perform, they can rise to some success. But the vast, vast majority, uh, less than 1%, will ever make money themselves from the game. And that's where it becomes exploitation of labor in youth. And these children can be subject to all kinds of harm while on these teams. Whether it's a physical injury, whether it's misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, racism, the many different forms of, of ostracization that, that children face. When we look at all of those factors, it's a working condition. And I think that's the tie between this exploitation of labor and the game of hockey. Those are the harmful conditions that those youth are put into to work. And many people would argue those are the conditions that are put into play. But I don't think that anybody in society envisions play as inherently also putting you in this situation where harm can be found very readily. And that's kind of where we're at with hockey in Canada. The Ontario government has stated that they're investigating the allegations that teams and organizations are being illegally bought and sold for millions of dollars. Now, these sorts of allegations have been made about the GTHL for years, but little has been done. And that's kind of how it goes in hockey. None of the stories that we're going to tell you this season happened overnight. But to speak out against hockey in this country is often treated as a form of blasphemy. And all of the scandals can obscure one very important fact. Hockey is supposed to be fun. After all, it's called a game for a reason. You know, externally, there's, hockey's got a whole bunch of issues, but playing the game, I loved playing hockey. I loved playing the game. The game is really great. When you start changing on the fly, like, you feel grown up. There's something about it. You've got, uh, you know, every team has a trainer, and there's the water bottles, and there's the being on the bench and going out hard for 45 seconds then coming back and debriefing and you have your line and your D and like there's something like you know really special about playing that game and I really liked it it is I mean there's nothing like it
That's your episode of Commons. This is our first episode in our new season on hockey. We have so much more in store for you. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Ian Kennedy and Nathan Coleman-Lamb in The Guardian, Rick Westhead at TSN, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLand.com. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. CanadaLand is turning 10. From May 24th to June 2nd, become a champion, our highest monthly support tier for only $10 a month. There are so many perks and exclusives available at the champion level. We want you to check it out and support us if you can. If you value this podcast, please support it. Your support makes a difference. Click the link in your show notes or head to candleland.com slash join to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode of Commons is brought to you in part by Canardian. What is Canardian, you ask? Well, it is a podcast that's gossiping about Canadian hometowns. Every episode, podcast producer and writer Katie Lauer is joined by various Canadian podcasting personalities to unravel the juicy stories about their hometowns from trusted sources like eyewitness testimony, community Facebook groups, subreddits, and Wikipedia. Nothing, nothing I say is fact-checked, but it is pretty dang entertaining. And you know who is a guest on this season of Canardian? Well, none other than yours truly. So if you are interested in the very important distinctions between Surrey and North Delta, if you want to learn whether or not I could outrun the Delta PD, well, this is the podcast for you. Listen and subscribe to Canardian from Pod the North right now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.